I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. Hello, this is Michael Horse from Twin Peaks. Shout out to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Thanks for all of you listening, and the Twin Peaks are the greatest fans. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. What's going on? This is not normal. This is... What is going on? This is Bizarro World. Are we in the lodge? Yeah. <laughs> Are we in the Black Lodge? We've got Silencio uh, starting off our show. We've got me introducing the show. This is not normal. This is not normal. This is 2.0. This Twi- Twin Peaks Unwrapped 2.0? Well, yeah. Wow. We're man. mixing it up. The next chapter <laughs> in our uh, <laughs> podcast here. It's very cool. I'm very yeah. excited. So I think we're going to start doing is we're going to start doing segments for our shows. I mean, I'm not every show. We'll still have these uh, special shows that we do, like the movies, Lynch movies. But uh, we're going to start doing these segments. Uh, and uh, what 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 are what are they in for for today's episode, Brian? Not only do we have the Log Lady stuff coming up, we have Joel Bacco. Joel with, Bacco. With a new segment called Lost in Twin Peaks. Lost in Twin Peaks. Is that like Lost in the Movies? Lost in the, Yes. <laughs> It's exactly like that. Lost in Twin Peaks with Joel Bacco. And we're going to be doing uh, stories. Yeah, we're not calling it news because it might not be current. It could be 25 years ago. It could be yesterday's news. And we're going to be going over as well the biggest thing that might some people might consider spoilers, and it's something I haven't even looked at myself, is the cast list. Yeah. I mean, this is something that's intrigued me since it's been released. We're going to do one or two, a few uh, every week. Yeah, we're not going to talk about everybody, but things that interest us and, you know, what could these people possibly be doing in there and stuff like that. So, I mean, we got, we got a lot in store, and there's going to be interviews, too. Well, Brian, I think it's Log Lady time. done this for the before we talked about log lady intros and i was resistant brian in actually talking about that and i think part of it is that like so these log lady intros didn't happen until 1993 when bravo got the license to re-air twin peaks wow to put that in context that means that the whole series had aired all 29 episodes 
And you got the movie, Firewalk With Me. And then Lynch gets around to writing all the, the intros and directing all the intros of the Logly. So in some ways, he can talk about mythology and certain things because mm. it's all been done before. So now we can look at the whole series and say, is he kind of talking about this? And we have a better understanding of Twin Peaks. Yeah, you know, if Twin Peaks was a puzzle, I personally would say that the Log Lady intros is the outer edge. It's... The puzzle has been made inside in that that the, the outer edge part that everybody starts at. Usually it moves inwards where David Lynch goes from the middle out. So we, we got pieces and then we got the bigger piece with the movie mm. and almost, uh, almost a full scope of what Twin Peaks is. And then, yeah, the Log Lady stuff comes out and that sort of fills out the edge and makes yeah. that beautiful... Uh, it, it rounds out Twin Peaks uh, very nicely. And for me, who've seen these Log Lady intros for the first time with the episode for the first time, mm. it was kind of a different experience. I wish I experienced it like you. That's almost like, wow, there's little nuggets of new things. And yeah. Now should, that and I, really I also exciting. just need to be seeing it through your eyes, be able to have like this kind of guide that's there to talk about the episode. So it's kind of neat both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into it. This is the pilot of Twin Peaks with uh, the log lady. Welcome to Twin Peaks. My name is Margaret Lanterman. I live in Twin Peaks. I am known as the log lady. There is a story behind that. There are many stories in Twin Peaks. Some of them are sad, some funny. Some are stories of madness, of violence. Some are ordinary, yet they all have about them a sense of mystery, the mystery of life, sometimes the mystery of death, the mystery of the woods, the woods surrounding Twin Peaks. To introduce this story, let me just say it encompasses the all. It is beyond the fire, though few would know that meaning. It is a story of many, but it begins with one. And I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura Palmer. Laura is the one. So that was my first introduction to Twin Peaks. Hmm. That very clip. That's something. <laughs> so, I mean, you watched it on the Blu-ray. So yes. Did you, did you know then to pick, oh, there's a Log Lady intro. You knew that you had to pick that to start off it? Like, uh, Yeah, yeah. I went with the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Neat. I was like, well, I got to have the full experience. Yeah. Yeah. From this intro, I, I wanted to pick apart just the part where she talks about it's beyond the fire, though mm. few would know the meaning. And I think of the fire as fire walk with, with me. me. Brian, what is this fire? I mean, this has been going on since the pilot. Since the pilot, they found the bloody rag and the note of Firewalk With Me. They visit the log lady at her cabin, and she's talking about fire, and her husband is dying of uh, from the fire. Mm. And, like, throughout throughout the series, it talks about fire, and then they name a movie Firewalk, firewalk with, with Me. me. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you get out of Firewalk With Me? It's like a metaphorical thing for um, maybe, maybe the pain we learn Laura Palmer had pain and suffering and she had a lot of issues and it was brought on by her 
father, that flame inside of her. I mean, sometimes sometimes you hear people say um, the flame, it's inside of you, it makes you creative and stuff like that. Mm. And I guess in this way, I kind of feel like fireworks with me, it's almost like this like bad thing. It's almost like she has this fire in her and it might not be good. This is... And it's a pain and suffering, right? Mm. And maybe just a metaphor for the pain and suffering she has. So fire walk with me means they're walking with some sort of uh, something with them that's bad. Yeah. I, I always felt like it was in a bad light in this show. Yeah. yeah. Never, I never uh, compared it to something good. People say, oh, you, right. you got a fire in you, kid. Right. Like, that means you got, like, some spunk. Right. But, I mean, in, in Twin Peaks, I've always taken it as with there's, like, you have a baggage and you're carrying it with you, right? and it could cause harm to you or others. Now, I take it to be about possession. In the movie Firewalk With Me, there's this, this great scene with Laura and Harold. He's real. He's getting to know me now. He speaks to me. What does Bob say? He says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. Yes! Yes! What? 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 Fire. Walk. With me. She looks like she's almost changing and when she says that. To me, it's like the, the devil walks with me. Yeah, like, that's, so, yep, yep. Like, so it's, it's this idea of possession that... that, that that's almost like the Bob coming out in her, mm-hmm. right? If we use Bob as a metaphor as the evil or yeah. the fire, right? Bob could be the f- metaphor for fire. So, yeah, that's pos- being possessed. The fire is something bad. It's walking with me. You're right, yeah, like it's a dark shadow or something. Another scene in Firewalk With Me where uh, the little man and Bob are together and they're talking. Well, that might even be the deleted scene. Wow, idea that they're going in and out of people and yeah. that, that possession we'd love to hear from you guys what do you think the fire in fire walk with me means yeah email us at uh twin peaks gmail.com in a future show we read what you guys think that'd be cool yeah well i think it's time for who's in twin peaks Brian, we've got a lot of uh, cast that are in the new series. Some people might consider this a spoiler. Yes, but this just broke not that long ago. Um, One of the great 90s bands, Eddie Vedder, was listed on the cast listing that came out this summer. And all of a sudden on Twitter and on Facebook and all these uh, social media outlets, it broke. He's got some music that he's going to put in the the new series. On the soundtrack or on the show. And it was weird that... It just, Eddie Vedder, like, was doing a solo show. And everybody knows Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Yeah, he was doing a solo show, and he does this acoustic song called Out of Sand. And he's saying, hey, it's a new song I've, I just wrote. Yeah, and um, there's tons of YouTube videos, which you can hear the song. It's a very good song. And all of a sudden, on Twitter... They think it has to do with the struggle of Cooper. That's what a lot of people are saying. Yeah. 
Um, the lyrics have been posted from what looks to be Eddie Vedder's handwriting in a notebook. And then Pearl Jam Online from the UK, which has been, it's not their official Twitter. It's a fan page, but it's been a fan page since like 2000. They come out and they say, breaking news, Eddie Vedder's new song, Out of Sand, will be included in Twin Peaks 2017. And they have these lyrics and people have already like broke it down and saying, yeah, it's like, is this something about Cooper or is this mm. some sort of uh, underlining theme of the of the show? show. Yeah. yeah. And that's very cool. It's awesome. Yeah, I it's kind of neat. It's kind of, I mean, so, I mean, one of the questions, I mean, there's a few musicians in the cast list. One of my favorites and someone who's worked with Lynch for years, uh, Trent Reznor was listed along with Eddie Vedder. And then Trent Reznor's uh, wife, who uh, she's in Destroy Angels, Marquine Mandes, she's going to be in it, which I didn't know about. Robin Finch, Sky Ferreira, Sharon Van Eaton, and Ruth Redlett. We're all going to be in it. And these are, it, it's interesting because Lynch loves music and music mm. helps tell his stories, mm. definitely. Are these people going to be in it physically? Or we're going to hear the music. Right. I mean, I think That's that was the when question. we first... Yeah, that was the question. And if this is true, it, it, it leads us to believe maybe they're going to be part of the soundtrack or they're going to be part yeah. of the music of the new Twin Peaks. Yeah. And I mean, this Eddie Vedder song coming out almost gives me a feeling that this stuff could be heard during the show hmm. and on the soundtrack. It's very bizarre for me because... Twin Peaks has an original score. You mm -hmm. never hear anything but right. the score music, right? And most of his mu movies are that way. We're going to be doing an episode about Inland Empire. Three in, months from now. Three months from now. <laughs> uh, but we will be doing that. And that was, I'm only bringing this up because that was the first movie for me anyway, where I actually heard, I heard Beck playing in one yeah, of the scenes. Right? It, it took me for a loop. I was like, here this is not an original mute song yeah. for this is a Beck song being placed in a David Lynch movie. This is so weird for me. Well, we had David Bowie in uh, Lost Highway. I know, I know that's true, but that was all original music made for yeah. a Lost Highway. Yeah, Chris Isaac, Wicked Games. Yeah, but was that made for? That wasn't no, made. No, no, that, that was wasn't. That, you're right. Right, but, but I hear you saying it's. You're not used to this modern yeah. music. You're used to more of the jazzy, mm -hmm. instrumental. That's what I'm used yeah, to. So right. I almost feel like this stuff we could hear on the soundtrack, and since right now all we know is that he's editing them, mm -hmm. this, stuff, this stuff could possibly end up being in the show. We don't know. I mean, David Lynch, is, he's changed his style throughout the years, so anything's possible. So I was thinking of True Detective, where they had like this this music, the singer, and it was kind of just the atmosphere. And that's what Twin Peaks always did with Julie Cruz, that you could have this mm. music go on, and it just kind of was part of that world. And you wonder if they would just lay that down yeah. and, as part of the scene. Could there be a scene where they go to a bar, and there's Eddie Vedder in the background playing the song mm. very faintly yeah. while a scene's playing out? That would be cool. So very interesting. You know, these are just a few of the musicians that are going to be in the show, and... We'll be going over more of the actors uh, in future episodes, but I guess we really want to hit upon that. It's time for Guest of the Week. Richard Saul Werman, how can I help you? Hi, this is Ben Durant. 
and Brian. I know you have questions for me, but I would like to start off with what seems like a simple-minded question, but is how did you find me? This I, I did Twin Peaks Access a number of years ago, but it's one of the oddest things I've done in my life. If you've taken the trouble to Google me, you will see that. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't have a major place in my curriculum vitae. I've done 90-some books, and there's this was a one-off strange experience to do this book which was triple and quadruple jokes on itself. <laughs> and I hope you have a copy. Do you, did you find a copy? Yeah, so I've been, I've been a fan. This is Ben. I've been a fan for uh, 25 years. So I, I think whenever this first came out, I think it was June of 91. And as soon as it came out, I bought it. So I, I have a, a, torn, a, a torn book from 25 years ago <laughs> here. But I, I'm, I'm 81 years old now. <laughs> wow. And, and, and uh, I've done about 90-some books and several of them major atlases and things on uh, learning theory and, and cartography and uh, a lot of guidebooks to cities. And uh, this was just something that occurred that... Uh, Somebody knew somebody and said, this would be funny to do, to do uh, a uh, takeoff on your access guides, which were very popular at this time, mm. and uh, to make fun of your access books at the same time making fun of Twin Peaks and do a kind of layered joke on joke on joke <laughs> on it. And it, if you do really read it, you'll see it's, it's, it's very odd. All the maps... All the street names are street na are named after my kids and friends, oh. <laughs> and all the maps were. I, we did all the maps from scratch. They don't, of course, they, nothing is meaningful in the whole thing. The whole thing is a made up fantasy. I went up to the out to the set and you know sat at the counter, got some inspiration there, and David took uh, David Lynch took the photo on the cover, and he took the photos of the uh, the taxicab section of the book. He took those photos, wow. and they're all meant to be. They're all meant to be fuzzy and out of focus, everything's meant to be look very uh, unprofessional. And then the opening letter to the book, a letter from the mayor, is is to me and gives me permission to do this book for the city. And I mean, it's all <laughs> very funny piece. But I will tell you that some of the strange things about this, when in the doing this, when I did this, I was also doing a lot of work in Japan, and they all had it in Japanese. It was translated into Japanese, and it was translated into Dutch. Oh, it was wow. translated into about 10 different languages, this book. That's cool. And and when I was in Japan, they just said, oh, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks. <laughs> they were more interested in that than what I was over there for. Isn't that something? So... Uh, it was a it was a strange uh, a strange exercise. Yeah, I wasn't sure what your involvement was because I mean, I, I think on the binder there it, it mentions you, Lynch and Frost. But then in the back it brings up uh, writers from the show and other people, art direction. But there's no mention of you, so it was so unclear what your involvement with the book was. Well, my 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 it, it was done by my office. We did mm -hmm. all the the layouts. We did all the artwork. Uh, Michael Everett worked for me. He was the art director of it for me. And the credits up there were David and Mark. They didn't have anything to do with it, uh, <laughs> except that, I, I, I mean, that he took some of the photos, but it was really, mm. uh, like, uh, it was difficult getting things out of them. But then some of the writers all contributed ideas of what we could, you know, research and write and do things. And most of them came out of uh, Michael Everett and myself thinking of these things to do. Yeah, there's some interesting uh, things where there was like like the Bookhouse Boys and they had like a passion play. And well, we just made up our own thing. I mean, it, 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 we were trying to mirror the show and take it to an even odder place. <laughs> and uh, I mean, when we showed that hand with fingers 
cut off, you know, and that didn't appear in the show. We just made up that joke. That was all. That's something. And so did you did you go to, like, Twin Peaks scripts, too? Did you, like, research it through? Well, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's a long time ago, but I yeah. went out to the set, and I talked to people. We talked to some of the, the various people on the show, and uh, we then just dreamed about how what silly place we could take everything. Mm -hmm. I love maps. That's where there's a bunch of maps in there. That was all. Yeah. And I also redid the phone books in California called the Smart Yellow Pages. Neat. That's where we have that phone book thing. Wow. And uh, by the way, the phone books in Reykjavik and in, in Iceland also go by first name. Interesting. Oh, wow. Something. That's cool. <laughs> so there's a lot of just strangeness in there. My books are about almost all subjects. I, I write on information theory, a lot on cartography, then a lot of books on cities. But I've done books on many, many other subjects. I have seven or eight books on medicine. Hmm. And on and different subjects. So, and and you've heard of the TED conference? Yeah, you're the founder of of, of the TED conference. Um, I created it and yeah. I ran it for 18 years. Wow. And I did the WWW conference and the the EG conference. So I've done a lot of conferences and a lot of books. Can and you I'm share? An architect. Can you share with us how the TED conferences came about? It was an observation a long time ago. The first one was 1984, hmm. and I just I observed that. Uh, there was three businesses that were very American businesses and that they were all leaning heavily on each other and didn't realize it, that they mm -hmm. were converging. And that was technology business, the entertainment industry, and the design professions. It spelled TED, and I thought I'd bring people from those three industries together in a room to talk about how they converged. Mm -hmm. And it caught, it caught on. It was a hobby. Mm -hmm. and, and I had two people working on it, Maximum, and I did all the graphics and all the planning, and I introduced everybody on stage. And I was on stage the whole time. It was a very personal dinner party for a 1,000 people that I held every year. And uh, it was sold out a year in advance. I sold it because I realized I was not going to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. And uh, it was taken over by somebody. My goal was to do the best conference in the world. I think by the end it probably was at that time. Somebody else, uh, somebody bought it. And their goal was and is uh, to change the world. And I think mm -hmm. that's as valid as it can be. I, would, mm -hmm. I, would, I don't care about changing the world. And so the conference has changed in its format and become global and TEDx's and uh, TED Talks. But I, had, I recorded everything for the first 18 years and gave away CDs and CD, mm -hmm. DVDs to, of all the talks. Many of the original principles are still in it, the 18-minute talk and the convergence of these things. What is being done now is more kind of pearls. So each TED Talk is a kind of pearl. Mm. Mine was a necklace. Mine was a necklace because mm. it was connected <laughs> together. Nice. But both both uh, both things are good. I mean, what Chris Anderson is doing is fine with me, mm. and uh, and he has he bought it. He has every right to do what he wants to do with it. And I've done other conferences since, and I've done better conferences than TED. Uh, but now I just do one, and when it, when it, if it's really good, I don't do it again. I'm not interested in, in doing something again if it works. Will we get a sequel of the Twin Peaks guidebook? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody's lined up uh, outside my, my gate here in Florida <laughs> to have me do a sequel. And I, I, uh, I, I would, if somebody wanted to do a sequel, I would certainly talk to them about it and uh, send them on there on a path. How much time does it take to put something like this together? It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, uh, I don't know, probably was six months. Wow. Months. Yeah. I mean, but it's very, it's very intensive to do these things. While I'm still doing other things, when I was doing this, I was still doing 
guidebooks to various cities in the world, you know, mm. to Tokyo and to London, Paris and Rome and New York and, and all those things. So this was not my main job. Sure. And Ted was never my main job. I, I, I just, I'm a hobbyist. You seem, cool. you seem to enjoy what you do and you embrace it and then you move on to the next thing. Well, I, I have never been asked. This is the only, I'm just thinking of this because I've said I've never been asked. And in many speeches I give, I say I've never been asked to do a conference or a book. Hmm. Actually, I was asked to do this book. This is the only actually piece of work I've done in 60 years that I was asked to do. Hmm. That's cool. Uh, so I was asked to do this book. They came to me with this idea thinking it was funny. It wasn't my initial idea. It was to some people uh, who were hyping something, and the show was being hyped, and they thought it would be a funny. The access things were very popular. They knew mm. I loved to do zany things, so they came to me. So this is probably the only thing I ever did that uh, I was asked to do. That's something. Brian and I were talking beforehand. Was it Parks and Rec that they did their yeah. own access guide? Park and Rec did an access yeah, the TV guide. TV show there. I didn't know that. When my first access guy came out, Johnny Carson had put it on the screen saying that this new book had come out, The Access Guide to L.A., but he had done his own called L.A. Apsis. And, uh, <laughs> he had somebody drooling blood out of their face and everything. Oh, all about, you know, And made a whole fun of my Access Guide to L.A. That doesn't sound good. Oh. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't do any PR, and so what ever. Are you, what are you working on now? What are you up to these days? Uh, I'm working on, I, I believe, the best project. I know people always hype themselves. I'm not trying to hype anything because of my last few books. I've never sent out for a review. I just do one printing and they sell out and, and that I go on. I don't reprint things. And I'm doing a book now called Understanding Understanding. It's 760 pages of musings with my mentors. So there's a chapter by E.O. Wilson, the top biologist in the whole world. And wow. a, a, chap, a chapter by on Frank Gehry with Frank Gehry's uh, stuff on it because he's one of my close friends. And mm. there's a chapter, many, most of it is my chapters of, on various things on medicine and and travel and cartography. There's a whole section on my urban observatory done with the ESRI people who are the largest makers of software for maps in the world. So it's a, a very weighty uh, 10 by 10 book that's uh, in full color and it will be out, uh, be printed. The first ones will be out in July next year. And I have to deliver the first 200 pages the first of December and then 200 pages every month till I get 760 pages out. It's all outlined and a lot of it done already. And uh, I'm working on that every day. That's nice. my major project. And it'll be my last book. Wow. It's really quite a beautiful book. It's my, it, it'll be the, I think the best thing I've done in my life will be this book. It's, wow. All my stuff is summed up in there. I'm working on a chapter right now about Lou Kahn, Louis Kahn, the architect, and Paul Clay, the, uh, the uh, painter. Man, and how very they interesting. made things understandable. It's about the idiosyncratic ways that different people understand things. Interesting. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, you, you're filled with knowledge. I mean, I'm so impressed with all the different things that you've been involved with. And uh, You did Google me. I did Google you. I Googled you. Did you, see, <laughs> did you see the film? Did you see the film that the Nantucket Project did on me? Because you should see that. I should see that. I actually haven't seen that. I watched some, some, uh, well, some okay. TED Talks. Well, okay, if you Google Richard Soul Wormer, just Wormen, mm -hmm. Nantucket Project film. It's an 11-minute film, and I think you'll enjoy it. In a simple-minded way, I get up one morning, something is interesting to me, I don't understand it. I look for a book that would help me. I look for a TV show that would help me understand. If I find that, I'm satisfied. If I don't find that, I do a book or a conference or a meeting or something about it. It's just all generated by my curiosity. So how do I begin? I begin by going to a terrifying place. 
The first access guide was in L.A. I did in 1980. Hmm. And I moved from L.A. Uh, I moved to L.A. from Philadelphia. I couldn't find a good guidebook, and I couldn't find my way around. Wow. So I did my own guidebook. And that's how Access Press started. Everything I do comes from something I am interested in and don't understand. Yeah. In the end of the film, I say, once you realize you don't have a legacy, you just do good work. I like that. Yeah. So what are you most proud of? I'm always proud of the next thing I'm doing. I, mm. You know, this is very funny talking about Twin Peaks Access. But, you know, I'm really more, much more interested in my, my next project. Yeah, that's something. Cool. And, 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 I, and that's why I don't reprint my books and I don't get them reviewed and I do no PR because it's of no value. I don't have a publisher. I just do things. Nice. So there's no chance of Access Guide getting uh, republished or even maybe in a digital no, no, format, no, maybe no, no, an no, ebook. No, 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 no. I don't care. I, I just don't care. Wow. I feel I feel like I'm holding on the book right now. I feel even more like I gotta I gotta keep better care of this book. Yeah, you gotta put it in plastic. I just found one here and I read parts of it today and I just was shocked because I didn't remember it. And I read stuff and I thought, oh my god, that's a hoot. It's really funny, and uh, it's almost enough for three books. All the all the places it goes, and all the avenues, and all the True. subplots and stories in it. So I just thought, well, I wonder if David ever looks at it again. Yeah, I wonder. Or if I, wonder. I wonder if he even remembers it. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. And you know, ne- next month, um, Mark Frost is coming out with a book, uh, The History of Twin Peaks. And I keep thinking he would want to look at this, like to get a better sense I of it. I think he should. I think he really should. <laughs> really? Honestly. Mark was very pleasant to work with. He was much more open than, uh, than Lynch. I think he would find this interesting because it, we cannibalized all the stuff we could possibly cannibalize from everybody mm. uh, to take little routes and write. You know, it's a whole book of marginalia, basically. Hmm. That's awesome. It's all footnotes. The whole book is footnotes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. What's well, something else? I, we really appreciate your time and sharing that with us. And uh, Yeah. And, and, and tell us again, when is your book coming out? And, and uh, where can we uh, get it? Oh, uh, I'm not trying to sell you. No, you can't get it. I'm not going to advertise it. I'm not going to send it to the viewers. It's going to be around, and people will virally uh, will get it. It's a different way of living your life. Yes. I, my last book, I, I printed 10,000 copies of a book called 33 and didn't send it to any reviewers. You couldn't get it on a bookstore. You can get it on, on uh, Amazon, but I didn't tell people that. They find out that. They mm. put 33 in, and they could buy it. And they, I gave them all the copies were given to the person who paid for the printing, a friend of mine. So he re- fulfilled the orders, and I got the paper free because I have friends. And I did the book. Uh, nice. And they all sold out. It's all sold out. I think there's probably, I guess you can get a couple used copies now. And, it, you know, I, I just did it. And it's gone. And that says a lot about you, that you didn't have to advertise, you didn't have to do that, that people ap- appreciate your work. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, virally, you can sell 10,000 copies at $22 and 22 cents. That's what it was went for. Because uh, mm-hmm. it was a discounted off of $33.33, which is the original price. <laughs> and uh, I, I have it inside the cover. It says the, the price is $33.33. But for you, a special thing, it's $22.22. <laughs> nice. And if you do see a copy sometime in a year of Understanding Understanding, uh, open it in a bookstore. You won't want to pay for it, but you might want to open it and see what happens. But my picture's on the cover of, my picture's on the cover of this one. And it's a picture taken by my wife with an iPhone of me in Iceland in front of some lava. Uh, wow. And um, the lava is 10 miles from 
a, a mountain I can't pronounce, which was the mountain used as the model for Jules Verne's uh, book, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, my goodness. That is and, something. And, uh, and it's a nice photo. I doctored it a little bit, and it looks okay. Nice. But it's not an autobiography. It's just me finally deciding to put my face on the cover because I love pictures of myself. And it's your, and it's your last book. I mean, you got to do it. If you, no, if it's my last book. You are an interesting and, man. And I really, I really think it's so, it's, it's really special. I don't think you know how special this is that we get to talk to you about this because yeah. I, I was Googling just your name and, and Twin Peaks and I was trying to find anything and I could not find any, any articles. I think I found they had put out a Gazette paper back in the day. It was only a few issues and I think they had your, your name associated with Twin Peaks Access oh. Guy. Well, I never had any association. I had no association with Twin Peaks. Yeah. I just did this book. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, pleasure, and uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it. Dear Metal Radio and uh, Sparkwin and 21 both did coverage on the Twin Peaks Access Guide to the Town, so I'd recommend you go check out their podcasts. And now, time for Twin Peaks Stories. <laughs> So, uh, Ben, what do we got this week in Storyland? Well, recently, I think um, the president of Showtime, Nevins, there was talking about how the format of the new series, it might be longer than an hour. It could be, I mean, it, they're not going to be stuck to the format of having to be exactly a certain time. And I like this. And this is something that is not new. This is something kind of new. In the last couple of years, I've been noticing with shows I've been watching. I noticed it first with American Horror Story. That show, you get an episode that was 60 minutes. Then you get an episode that was mm. an hour and 20 minutes. Then you got an episode an hour and a half. Then you get two hour episodes. And it was very bizarre. Yeah. Like, that was my first experience of this odd like time frame right look at fargo fargo was another one where yes. i would look at it and it's like what is it it's an hour and 13 minutes and now, the thing is there are still commercials in in this in these shows where this where showtime will not have commercials exactly I, which should be interesting too to be like oh it could go hour and 20 minutes and this kind of makes sense because they had this whole idea where it's all one big movie. Like that's the idea that like I don't know if they wrote the, the, all the scripts together, and it's like they're gonna they're gonna basically decide where to how long it is in the editing process. Mm. So it kind of makes sense that like hey, we feel like this this is comfortable to go an hour and ten minutes because we, we've said it everything. It feels like a natural ending. And ending right. For... I, I was concerned that it was like oh sixty minutes and all, it's gonna be an abrupt ending and it's not gonna feel. I feel that... like this is gonna be Twin Peaks as. A, a show if you think about the way television has evolved I think season three I feel like it's going to evolve the way television is being told now mm. the, the highly suce successful shows are an ongoing story that is like week to week it's just moving Fargo uh, the night of uh, mm. true detective anything it just goes and it's not like it ends then we start again next week with something else it's like just an ongoing story and i think david lynch works like that you know like his movies like could go on forever if yes. he wanted them to <laughs> right um so i kind of feel like yeah if he feels this is a natural ending to episode one yep. and it's an hour and 40 minutes well then that's the natural ending we're gonna get right i kind of feel like that's 
so the question then becomes is how there was talk about doing a the, theatrical release. How does that work in? So that's nothing new either. With Game of Thrones, Doctor Who, other big time shows, what they've been doing is premiering it at a local theater mm-hmm. through um, a certain company does these special events. Sort of like when we saw Lost, they did the Q&A thing with Lost, yes, right, which we went that. to. Um, so what they do is, like, say uh, Twin Peaks for Shits and Giggles is going to be on Sunday. I think either they would do it on Saturday and have a a uh, special screening or on Sunday. Maybe they even make it the day of. They don't mm-hmm. want anything to leak. So they do the day the same day. You could go to the theater, and at 7 o'clock, they're going to uh, satellite through all these special theaters Mm -hmm. the first episode. And you can watch in the theater. Now, originally what I thought they were going to do is they were going to take two episodes. Like, maybe it would run for two weeks, and then the third week they would re-release it in theaters is what I thought they might do. But now, knowing that the format could be an hour and 40 minutes, it could be... I mean, would that be a comfortable theatrical movie have two two episodes together, or will it be long enough that it actually could be one episode? Well, here's the thing. I know uh, Game of Thrones is in Doctor Who, and those are only... Game of Thrones, their first episode of the season is an hour. Okay. And they'll do a movie really? screening. Doctor Who, they generally do an hour. There's no commercials in the UK. An hour to them is a, a 40 minutes or whatever because they cut it up. But, like, they'll premiere that in the theater. Sometimes it's an okay. hour, an hour and a half. I yeah. think it doesn't matter. But with Twin Peaks, I kind of feel like they'll premiere that first episode. Or, like, maybe they'll do the first and the last episode in the theater. Like, if it's a big turnout for that first episode, have a special engagement um, for the season ending. Or if they cut it up in two seasons. I don't know. I think an hour works. If it's a special thing. It's a special thing. Like, I've been to the theater for some weird things, which only lasted maybe an hour. So I, I okay. So it, then it doesn't have to. I mean, I'm so used to like thinking I, if I'm going to go to a theater, I'm going to go it for for two hours yeah. or an hour and a half. You know what I mean? Like, whatever it's considered a feature film, you know, yeah. a full length film. Yeah. But it's interesting to see that it doesn't have to be that way. It could just no. be one episode. It could and be. I still think they're they're going to show it first on Showtime and then maybe the next day show in theaters. It'd be kind of strange to think that they could do it at the same time. But they I guess could they, do they it. Could. They I could. They could. They could do it at the same time. Um, they could. That would be really cool, and that would be very special. I don't think we're going to get the theater experience first. The diehard fans are going to go, obviously. We would go. Mm. You'd see it a day early. But would that like, would that kind of go against the mystery? Because then a whole bunch of people have already seen it. It's going to appear the next day. I mean, that is a possibility, too. But I almost feel like it might be letting the cat out of the bag one day early. And they did do it that way. I bet you they get a lot of Showtime uh, subscribers. I mean, I bet you get a lot of people who, like, and they leave the theater and they're You're like, absolutely I'm, right. I'm signing up for Showtime. I wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah. You're right. That is a good promotional tool. So yeah. I scrap everything I just said. I mean, if you think about it, yeah, if you did it on a, a Friday, Saturday night and the show premieres on Sunday, the diehards go see it. I want to see it again. I want to see it again. <laughs> I will subscribe to Showtime. I will tell my friend, yeah. you got to subscribe to Showtime. Right. So I guess I'm, I am I think about it as in the David Lynch way where it's a mystery. Does he want people to see it before it premieres? But at the same time, Showtime could say... It's still a business involved. It's a business right. and it's a promotional tool for mm. us. It could. That's what HBO does. I mean, all these companies, it's a smart way. Right. Right? And I mean, it's hard to realize too, and I, maybe you're, you're more of this, you don't need cable anymore. You've got, you can just stream it and... And um, this might be off topic, but I found out I will be able to watch Twin Peaks live, 
Through the Showtime app? Or? I will subscribe to Showtime for my PlayStation View. Um, I will subscribe to Showtime. It's $10 extra. Yeah. I will subscribe to it. I will watch Twin Peaks live. And nice. then when Twin Peaks is over, I'll just unsubscribe. Okay. Yes, I'm very excited. Right. I, I figured this out the other day. I'm like, Showtime's on here for 10 bucks a month? I'm in. There, there so you as go. soon as that starts, I'm, I will watch it live. Yeah. And in the same article, the President Evans is saying... There, there's still not. There's still no number of episodes. They're still working that out. They're, I know there was this whole 18 being thrown around. Yeah, I don't know. think it's actually set in stone that it's 18. Still arbitrary number yeah. that someone could have came come up with, or maybe someone was saying like two seasons would be X, a number X, a number that would equal 18. So there you go. Reading this article, it makes me feel like Joel Baco mentioned at one point. Um, how, you know, next year would kind of replicate almost the season one if they went by the original airing of Twin Peaks. Hmm. And I don't think that's going to happen, but how interesting would that be if David Lynch was like, well, this is very special because we could replicate that. I mean, granted, they would keep it on the same night. They wouldn't just start changing the nights. But if he said that first episode is going to be like a movie, it's going to be a two-hour movie, and then we're going to go to an hour format, and then maybe we'll the eighth episode in will be another movie. We'll be you know. Yeah, and who then, knows? The who point, knows? Yeah. Right. Talking about Joel Bacco uh, is a good time to talk it's about good segue. His, a good segue. <laughs> so I think I'm I'm always hearing people want Joel on the show more, and it's always yes, hard. For, we love about, Joel. We love Joel, and but it's so hard to figure out like our schedules to be able to get him on all the time. Yeah. But we found a way to do it. We did. And fascinating fact about Joel. Every time we call him, he's always out of five guys. So if <laughs> you ever, every time. If you want to find Joel Baco, he's oh, out of five guys. <laughs> Joel's going to kill us. I know. No, it's awesome. So we are going to start doing a segment, Lost in Twin Peaks with Joel. Yes. And he will, we'll be there with him, and he's, he's going to bring all kinds of different topics related to Twin Peaks. We're there, sort of. We're, we're we sort just, of there. We, we're in we the say, background. We say one thing, and we let him go with it. But it's very interesting. Yes. I love it. This is such a great idea, Ben. I'm glad we brought Joel onto the show, and yeah. I, I think it's going to be awesome. So here it is, Lost in Twin Peaks. topic is the ring. That's really the last thing that, specifically the Owl Cave ring from Firewalk with me. Mm. That's kind of the last thing we didn't really have time to discuss. I'm curious, uh, before I get into my thoughts very quickly, um, and, you know, and it's hard to summarize quickly, but what, did you, what do you guys think about the ring? Do you have any specific thoughts about it? Because mine tend to differ from other people, so I want to get yours before I go into it. I'll let Ben go first on this. Well, it's so com- I mean, it's so complicated in Firewalk with me because Cooper says don't take the ring, and yet the, the ring seems like it saves Laura in the end. But then, if we're looking at the missing pieces from Firewalk with me, the nurse takes mm-hmm. it, and it, it, and the nurse seems like she's looking in the mirror, and so it, I believe that it's evil. I think that there is something evil about this ring, but it's 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 something that I wrestle with. My opinion about the ring, um, after seeing the movie and everything. Uh, there is something I've seen online. I've 
like uh, that that ring is a piece of the table that the little man mm. is at, and if that ring was made by something in the room, uh, the red room. Wasn't mm-hmm. really the red room at the time. They were in that shack above the uh, convenience store. Convenience store. So if that is a piece, I almost I could see the evil thing, but I almost feel this ring allows the flow of in and out of this the, between the, two worlds. The, between two right. worlds, the like spirit and the yeah, because the ring is out in the real world, then it's in, and the ring could be the key to back and forth. And then, yeah, the nurse has it, but if Annie had it on, would that key allow to save Cooper? Hmm. Uh, so many questions, right? And I, yeah, could it be evil? I don't know. But that, I, I see it as a, a uh, an element that allows people to go back and forth freely, maybe. Cool. That's my theory, anyway. Okay, so that's, that, I mean, that makes sense. Um, I think in terms of what Ben said, that's a very common theory. Um, a lot of people conclude it's bad because Cooper says it's bad and because it's connected to spirits who seem pretty creepy. Um, I actually think the opposite, though. I think it's an extremely positive device. Hmm. So I want to go back and look through the movie because I think a lot of stuff gets thrown onto it from things that people have said about it since or assumptions that are made, the things that are in the script or maybe even the missing pieces. So if we just go through the movie and kind of stick to what we see on screen, the first time we see or any have any indication of the ring is it's missing from Teresa's finger. We can see the mark where it was on her finger. Mm, and then yeah. we see Chet and Sam looking at the picture in her uh, trailer and noticing she has the ring. And I think at that point we see it as the owl cave symbol, which is different from in the script. In the script they say, we can't see what the picture, what the image is, but maybe we'll try and blow it up, and we probably still won't be able to. So, uh, in the film, I, I think it's shown a little more sharply than it was originally planned. After that, Chet Desmond asks the sheriff if he knows anything about Teresa's ring, and he makes a joke about the phone ringing. Mm. And then we see the ring actually in the action for the first time, which is Chet Desmond discovering it under the trailer. And apologies if I'm missing everything here, but I, I think I've been pretty thorough. Mm. So at that point, he reaches under the trailer. It's on a mound of dirt, exactly like the uh, heart necklace was in mm. the train car, or will be since this is before pilot. that. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, another artifact from the victim placed on a mound at the spot where they were killed, because Teresa was killed at the uh, Chalfont trailer, or so we're led to believe. If you look mm. at the decoration, it's not her trailer. It's a different trailer, and um, also the for whatever they're worth, the script, I'm not sure if it's in the script, but the actual onset documents refer to it as the Chalfont trailer. Hmm. So so this is actually the scene of the crime that he's at in this moment. And that kind of explains why there's a mound there with an artifact from the victim, just like uh, it's later placed at Lars death scene. So he reaches under there, and at that point, the film freezes, and we fade away. Hmm. And that's it. And I think that's important to stress, because... Uh, there's this assumption that he's zapped into the lodge, and while mm. that's certainly possible and maybe even likely, there's absolutely no evidence of it in the film. True. Um, yeah. Really whatsoever. There's a little bit in the missing pieces, but we'll get to that in a second, and even that's kind of oblique. So that's that's sort of our first sighting of the ring within the, the film itself. Then we see it on the table in Lars' dream. So we see it actually um, sitting on the same table that was behind Annie in the red room in the finale. And... Uh, Earlier in the film, we saw the convenience store, and like uh, uh, Brian mentioned, there's a hole on the Flamica table, which is green, hmm. and uh, that hole is, you know, 
the size of the ring, and then on this black uh, table or golden black table in the uh, lodge, we see the ring sitting on the table. So it's almost kind of like an inverse image, hmm. you know. If you reverse, it's it's like a uh, inside-out kind of reflection. Yeah. So the little man takes the ring, he, and earlier in the uh, in the convenience store, although I don't think he holds the ring, he just talks about it. He says, "With this ring, I be wed," and it seems like he's saying that to Bob. Mm. So uh, in the actual red room, the little man holds it up to Laura, and Cooper looks at it and he says, "Don't take the ring, Laura. Don't take the ring." Uh, within her dream, she sees Annie next to her. She gets that message about Coop in the lodge. The real Coop is in the lodge, and then uh, Laura's arm is numb. And then she opens it up and sees the ring and sort of gasps and is horrified. And then she walks out into the hallway and looks around. So that's it for the ring in that section of the movie. And then the next time we see it is Philip Gerard, the one-armed man, is waving at them and yelling at them in the traffic jam. and Well, you know, a traffic jam that he made. Mm. And he's got the ring on his pinky finger. And uh, it's important to note this is the only time in the movie we see a ring on somebody's right hand. For obvious reasons, he has no left Hand, so mm-hmm. clearly he's got to make do. Um, but it's also on a different finger. It's on the pinky instead of the ring finger. Um, and I believe on both, I believe on both Teresa and um, Laura, it's on their ring finger. And then we see uh, it on, now this is really important. We see it on Teresa's finger in the Leland flashback. Um, but we only see it at one point in that entire flashback. At every other point, it's either not on her hands, it's not on her hands in the magazine advertisement, hmm. it's not, we can't see her hands when they're in the motel room because he's lying on top of her left hand. And then even when they're in the motel parking lot, um, we only see it when she's walking away from him and turns around to look back. Uh, before that, it's hidden by her ice pack. And if you like freeze the frame, it's there, it's on her finger, but they actually make you, they, they try to make it invisible. Hmm. Okay. So uh, they actually, she's holding an ice pack and she's Bob's her hand out of frame and you can't see it. So that's it for, for her in the ring. And here's the key thing. She's not wearing it when she's killed. She has no ring on her finger. And the, he makes David Lynch make sure that you can tell that because she's holding her left hand up um, mm. as if it's numb with her right hand in front of her. So then Laura has the image of uh, those three people, the one-armed man, Teresa, and the little man, all with the ring. And she said, oh, my God, it's the same ring. And then the next time we see it, it's the very end of the film. It rolls into the train car when Philip and Renette have opened it right before it closes. And Laura puts it on, and that's when Leland screams and, and kills her. And that's it. That's it for what we see of the ring in the film. So, so to move on to the interpretation, I think there's a few important things to point out about that. First of all, there's this assumption that the ring has something to do with death and doom. Um, I guess you could say doom because, you know, the people who wear it, something, or people who wear it or encounter it, something unfortunate usually happens to them but uh, i think it's significant teresa isn't wearing it when she's killed um but so the question is then what do all of these disparate occurrences of the ring have in common and i think every single one has in common that they're uh, they involve a character coming to either coming to greater knowledge or trying to find something out um it's it's always about this idea of of sort of discovering something or learning more so Chet Desmond is trying to solve the mystery, and he sees the ring, and he reaches for it, and we never see him touch it. Accordingly, he's out of the film. We never find out any more about him or what he discovered or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Teresa is only shown wearing the ring at the moments where she has power over Leland, where she knows where she's starting to realize he may be Laura's father. Uh, that happens in the motel parking lot, and it also happens in the missing pieces when she calls him to blackmail him, 
the fact that they have her uh, quite prominently playing with the ring on her finger so that it's it's visible and you notice that. So in both of those scenes, there's an indication that it has something to do with her power. And I'll also point out that uh, people associate the left arm going numb with the ring, but in fact, uh, we only see the, the arms being numb when the characters don't have a ring. Uh, that's true of Teresa. Her ring certainly, her, her hand certainly isn't numb when she's making the phone call or anything like that. Um, and it is numb in the trailer when she's being killed and she's not wearing it. Same thing with Laura. She, she holds her hand, she holds her arm in bed, uh, and it's numb and it's kind of dead at her side. And then when she opens up her palm to see the ring in it, her, her hand is not numb, her arm is not numb, it's fully mm-hmm. mobile. Um, so at that point, I would kind of point out something Martha Nokomson said uh, in her book, The Passion of David Lynch, which is a huge influence on how I see the ring. She points out that, uh, you know, Laura frees us with fear, but it's also clearly, but having the ring in her hand is also clearly a return to animation in her left hand, despite her anxiety. And then she walks out, she's relieved to find the ceiling fan is inert. The ring is once again connected with relief for her. Hmm. So I think those points are really important. And it's also true throughout the film. You have that ambiguous moment um, and I'm not totally sure what to make of it, where the little man it says, with this ring, I'd be wed, and a lot of people interpret it as he's sort of allied with Bob. But throughout the entire film, he's, he's clearly very much opposed to him. They're always kind of working at counter-purposes, and uh, I think a lot of people point out the little man and Mike, Philip, you know, Philip Gerard, all these entities that are associated with the spirit Mike, because the little man is his arm and everything like that, mm. they're all very connected to the ring. You know, I think it's the case to be made that he's drawing Laura to him with this ring. And he's clearly a figure who's juxtaposed and opposed to Bob. Yeah. So, uh, again, there you have a case of the ring being a good thing. It's, it's leading someone, you know, basically away from Bob, which right. is what you want. And the whole so, thing with the ring, uh, I wanted the, to say about the the the, uh, the wed. I always thought of the conversation about uh, possession. They're talking about mm-hmm. this is the, uh, that you know, because I, I think it might be in the script, but they're going in and out, they're up and down, and I felt like it was a whole conversation really about this. Uh, taking over people's bodies. I don't know. To me, that I didn't think of it as a, a partnership really between Bob and, and the little man. I thought it was almost a conversation yeah. about possessing the, the humans. Right. I don't want to get too off topic of the ring, but I will say really quick that to me that them sitting at the table is more of like two, like almost in a war where you have the diplomats facing off mm-hmm. and, you know, they can be cordial and polite, but they're at war. Mm-hmm. That's how I see that scene. I think they're, the form like a table is kind of a stand-in for the world and they're basically fighting over it. So, mm. so that might you might want to transplant that into another conversation, but <laughs> that's kind of my aside on that. So with the ring, I think the two key things that, that the three key things that people notice that beyond what I've already talked about is that Laura is, Laura puts it on right before she dies, that um, Bob seems upset about this and, you know, is not able to accomplish his goal, which was to, to, to possess her, take control, and, and have her allied with him. And then uh, the, the Cooper says, don't take the ring. So you have these three things, all of which they seem sort of contradictory or, or everything like that. I think it's important not to take Cooper too seriously in the film uh, in terms of being wise or, you know, a sage or anything like that. We're used to doing that from the show, but let's remember that he fell at the end of the show, and mm. it, it was was proven to be a, uh, a flawed hero for us, and in fact, not the ideal hero. And in the film, we're switching our protagonist, essentially, to Laura. And throughout the first half hour of the film, it's just constantly reinforced that the FBI agents really don't have a grip on the situation at all. Hmm. So I see that as a continuation of that. There's all kinds of theories as to why he says that. Maybe he's right, and it just means something else. But that's my interpretation, is 
he's a, he's afraid of the knowledge that's associated with the rain and the danger that's because you know knowledge is dangerous. So I think that's sort of key to realize. And then um, also at the end with with Laura, the thing that bothers me about the way that people frame it in terms of it being a dangerous thing and all of that is I don't think Laura is choosing suicide in the train car. Hmm. Uh, she may die as a result of her choice, but her choice is to confront the truth and to refuse Bob. That's her choice. Now, if she dies as a result of that, okay, but I think people mix cause and effect. They think, okay, um, you know, she refuses Bob because she wants to die, or Bob kills her because she wants to die. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think what happens is she is accepting this, this unknown quantity, this ring, um, this, this sort of knowledge, not just of Leland and Bob, a refusal to kind of cover up the truth about that, but also a connection to this larger spiritual reality. And I think, you know, we talk about the Lodge as a physical place that the ring takes you to, but I think it's important to keep in mind its uh, more metaphorical meaning, which is a higher state of consciousness. And that's something we'll get into when we, you know, eventually discuss Hinduism and how it relates to Twin Peaks. But mm. uh, Lynch is somebody who unequivocally, and in fact has made his life's mission, the advancement of higher states of consciousness and have, helping people to access them. That's what Transcendental Meditation is, full stop. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what the ring is really linking her to, and her dream and these spaces that she can go to that are beyond her, her very claustrophobic everyday life. And those spaces are frightening, and they're very unknown, and they're, they're, they're chilling, and you have to kind of make a leap of faith to enter them. But, you know, as she, as she kind of discovers, they're much fuller and richer and uh, safer, really, than her, than her reality with Bob. And here I want to, again, read from Martha Nockhamson, because I think she just puts it beautifully, uh, the way that she describes it. So in her book, The Passion of uh, David Lynch, Martha Nockhamson says, At this extremity, we see two visionary truths. First, in taking the ring, Laura is choosing not oblivion, but survival. Second, we see that this kind of death that results from the leap of faith is appealing away of the rational illusion of boundaries. So I think that's absolutely key. Um, you see movies going back to Blue Velvet, Racerhead, and uh, certainly in Blue Velvet, the characters, they see a deeper reality, and then they kind of go back to, it seems like they kind of go back to the illusion at the end of the film, where the Robins are back, and they seem very mechanical, and everybody's happy, but it's like, they haven't, it doesn't seem like they fully learned or passed through the, the experiences they had in the film. And Twin Peaks and Firewalk, for me, it's, it's kind of the opposite. You, they discover the darkness underneath the surface, and they can't go back to that light, that lightness, that vision of like the mechanical robin. They have to pass completely through the darkness and pain and get to the other side, which is an understanding. All of that is unified. It's part of a bigger picture, which is beautiful. The good, the bad, the ugly. And that's another key point. Lynch believes in the unified field. That's what he calls it. It's sort of a term that's been, I, I guess you can find it sort of a cross-section of um, a, a certain mode of quantum physics, and again, transcendental meditation. In fact, I think the, the TM people use it a lot. And it's this idea that underneath everything, underneath the chaos and the confusion, there is an underlying order to the universe, and that's a very Hindu concept. Hmm. And that's the last thing to point out about the ring, is that it's a circle, but it's like a, it's a still circle. It's not moving. The fan is a moving circle. The record player is a moving circle. These are like symbols of this kind of recurring cycle and pattern but this is like it's a frozen kind of stately, immobile circle, which represents peace and stability and a, and a sort of order to, to, to Laura's universe that she doesn't have anywhere else. 
And I think that's another reason that maybe her instincts lead her to take that ring in the end. I want to read one, one passage from the video, which kind of sums it up. Ring has reanimated frozen limbs, offered travel between worlds, and accompanied knowledge and power over Leland and Bob. Unlike the ceiling fan and the record player, it's a circle characterized by stillness rather than perpetual motion, promising an order and unity absent from Laura's own life. Mike wields the ring, but in this moment, he is locked out of the train car by Bob. This moment being right before, you know, the angel appears and everything. Fear has closed this door. What can open it? And, of course, the answer to that is love can open it, because fear and love open the doors. Mm. So that's my view of the ring. Do we want to look at the missing pieces and the fact that there is some talk about the ring in the missing pieces? In the missing pieces, Jeffries mentions the ring, and he mentions it um, a few lines after he says, I found something at, at Judy's place, I found something. And then they were there. They sat still for hours, and he talks about them. And then he says, ring, the ring. Mm -hmm. So we can maybe deduce from that that possibly the thing he found was the ring. But even there, it's, it's very uh, sort of vague and sketchy. Um, and then, uh, the, and then uh, after that, Sam tells Coop about the ring, says that Teresa had a ring and, you know, they couldn't find it. And then we have an extended version of the dream sequence. Same thing with the ring, you know, where uh, the little man holds it up and Cooper says, don't take the ring. So mm -hmm. same scene as in uh, the film, just a little longer. And then we have a repeat of that sequence. But this time there's no ring on the table. And Cooper asks about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the little man says something. Um, I think Cooper asks, is this future, is it past? Mm -hmm. not, I, I didn't write down that line. But basically he realizes the fact that the ring's not there means that even though he's sort of lost in time inside the lodge, that somehow this is a later date and the ring is out there. And then finally we see Annie with the ring on her finger and the nurse comes out and takes it off and smiles and looks at it in the mirror. These are relics of the script and the script changed in the film. The ring is not in the final scene in the script. So there was no closure or resolution for the ring. It was mm. kind of an open-ended symbol that didn't uh, figure into the climax at all. And the last time we saw it in the film, when Gerard waves it in their face, and then she sees you know, them, and she goes, oh, the ring, the ring, and Bob says it doesn't matter to her in a, in a voiceover. Yeah. So, so we have to keep in mind that um, you know, these were, they were designed to serve a different purpose. Not sure what that purpose is or if Lynch even knew, but it's a finished film. The ring has a very different meaning and a different context than it was supposed to. Um, so there was no redeeming value to the ring where, where she takes it and Bob kills her. It wasn't part of that dynamic. Now, the other thing is, I do think the missing pieces are, are canonical. I think they can be fit into the overall story. And uh, so then we have to ask, how does what we see, which was intended for something different, how can it align with, with what the film actually includes? And I think you still see the ring representing um, a form of knowledge of, of other sort of a, a larger reality, be it spiritual or physical, um, because the nurse takes the ring right after Annie delivers the same message she delivers to Laura, mm. which is, uh, you know, the, the good Dale is in the lodge and he can't leave, write it in your diary. So in this case, uh, it's, it's really the same thing as we saw with Laura. A character receives knowledge from a, actually specifically receives knowledge about Bob, and his whereabouts, because if the good Dale is in the lodge, implicitly the Dale out in the world is somebody else. 
So, so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind. And the interesting too is, am I right that when when Annie gives the message to Laura right after that, she does receive the ring. It's like in her, in her hand, yeah. and then it disappears. It disappears. Yeah. And it's funny to see the yeah. delete, the deleted scenes. We have Annie saying the same message, and then the nurse gets the ring. But it seems like you, you have a message and then, I don't know if there's a connection, but it seems interesting that there's yeah. there's a message and then there's the ring. The ring. My only thing, am I wrong? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Am I wrong about this? But in the deleted scene, didn't Cooper, he was, so he's talking to the little man from another place at, at the table. Yeah. And he says, um, where's the ring? And he doesn't really get an answer. And I think he says, yeah. Annie. Yeah. Am I right? He realizes that, yeah, he makes that connection somehow. Yeah. Plus, also keep in mind, we see that table behind Annie in the final episode. Uh, there was no ring at that point. It either, you know, it hadn't been created. So, uh, but but we do see her in front of that table. Wow. So the idea could be she took it at that point. Well, thanks to Joel Baco. He, uh, you know, I, I think everybody knows he does his Journey Through Twin Peaks essay. Guys, they are amazing. You should go to YouTube and check those videos out. I'm really hoping he does a lot more uh, when we get closer to the new series. There. Oh, definitely. Yeah, good stuff. Yes. Thank you, Joel. It's time for community feedback. I love that song. That's like one of my favorite Silencio songs. I'm glad you picked that as the community feedback theme then. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was too like I love it. raw for the last song. No. Like, yeah. It's raw because we're going to be reading some <laughs> raw, raw emails. Yeah. No. Everything's nice. Not going to be raw. One of our longtime listeners, I feel like he's been listening to the show probably since the beginning. He's been very honest with us. Yes. Always, which is great. I love it. I like having someone just, you tell how it is, but he's been loving the show so far. And I don't know if we've ever shared this story on, on, on the show. John, are you prepared for us to share this story? He is. He, he's he is. Uh, he, he can do he, it. Yes. We, I think early on when we were doing this podcast, uh, John would, you know, he would uh, email us. And I think there was one email where he's like, you know, he was saying all these good things, but it's like, at the same time, I want to throw my phone. <laughs> phone he was getting aggravated he was getting aggravated because we sometimes we'd mess up names yeah and there was one time where we just went on too way too long about something that was not correct yeah yeah and but i still love that because it made us realize how can we get better i think john really does make us try to be better every week yeah because he's he's our cheerleader but at the same time he will tell it like our biggest critic our biggest critic and i love it thank you john yeah thank you you're sort of like you're you're like a nicer version of the teacher from uh, Whiplash. You can email us like John did at Twin Peaks, unwrapped at gmail.com. John says, here, this is what John said to us this week. You understand your brand so well. You present the experience of what fans do for other fans in such an organic way that you really feel like we're with you. Um, he's talking about the Slentia show, by the way, mm. which just aired last week. Um, whether it's about arts and crafts, movies, conventions, and now you figure out how to bleed interviews with the band on top of your performance, so neither the mood nor the momentum is broken. When we went to that Silencio show, I envisioned that episode to sound that like that. Like mm. before we even went, I was just like, I kind of, I I want to NPR it. That's what it, uh, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, it. I want to NPR sounded, it. You sounded cool until you said NPR. I know, I know. I don't listen to NPR. But I envisioned that's what it sounded like. <laughs> a long, long time ago, I had a public access show 
called Equilibrium TV. It was a music-oriented show. Mm. We would film bands. Now, we made this uh, public access show because we're like, just like Twin Peaks Podcast, it was a way where we can meet some of our favorite bands. And that was it. It was like, we create a show, we meet some of our favorite bands, and uh, everyone's happy. And we did, I did stuff like that. I did Mm. the editing. It was visual. Um, There's clips on YouTube, ETV. And I would edit kind of the interviews into the songs a little bit, but I kind of like doing it just audio. It was so nice. It was so tight. You did such a great job in that editing uh, of last week's show. Well, I was you, like I, so impressed. Like you, you had finished it and say, hey, you should listen to it. I was listening. like, oh my gosh, this is so good. <laughs> it's like so tight. It just blends together like John, John Bernardi here yeah, saying. Yeah. And he goes on, you've collaged interviews together before, but this one is a whole new level. The work you put into the stuff is not lost on me at all. Big time kudos. Take care, John. If that episode blew your socks off, I think this episode's going to blow yours. I think 2.0, Ben, uh, your ideas with all these segments. We did so much in today's episode. Yeah. Oh my God. I don't know. Can we keep this momentum going? I think we can. <laughs> can we? I like I, this. And I think, I mean, the, the goal, I think, is at least to have 2.0 up to the new series. So, I mean, I think this is our format for now. And yeah. 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 And it's I good. mean, that Silencio show was sort of like a good wrap up from mm. our original season. And this is a new season, um, a new sound for us. Like a palate cleanser, yeah. Yeah, and who knows, maybe when we go into season three, we can we can have Silencio on again or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, they're such a great band. Yeah. And, you know, mentioning Silencio, thank you uh, to Kirk and the band again for uh, for letting us use their music on the show. Uh, uh, yeah. You can find them on Amazon. I listen to them on Apple Music. You can listen to them. You can download them through iTunes. I mean, you can find them just about anywhere. They're yeah. great music. And. Uh, we need to get Silencio out more. So share that episode with others. It is posted on Reddit. People seem to love it. It's got a good response. But it's more about getting their music out there so more people hear it. People can't see them live because they, they don't travel very far. Mm. And I got a lot of things on Reddit saying, thank you. I would love them to play in my area. Mm. But this is the best I have. I'll listen to this. Awesome. Please email us at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com, just like John has and others do. And we will probably read uh, your comment or if you have a question on the air eventually. So. Right. And we'll also take the audio feedback. You can always record something, maybe on your phone or some other way, and email it to us, and we might uh, play it on the show. Yeah, yeah. So we've been uh, really on Reddit. Uh, Facebook has blown up. We're getting likes at least a couple times a day. New people are joining um, our uh, Twin Peaks on Facebook. And then we're on Twitter. And Twitter, you've been taking care of business on Twitter. It's exploding on Twitter. Oh, yeah. With that being said, also subscribe to us. We're free on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Let's get us in the top 50. And Ben, uh, I guess, what are we going to leave leave today? Well, since we talked about Eddie Vedder, why not play his song? You guys tell us, what do you think? Does this have to do with Twin Peaks? Yeah. So here's Eddie Vedder with Out of Sand.
Thank you.